0: Amen. Well thank you Henry for leading us in worship. Isn't it been a good day to be in the house of the Lord already? Amen. To hear the word of the Lord together, to sing of God's grace and mercy. If you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 1 as we um, are beginning our our sermon series in the book of Philippians. Last week we looked at the birth of a church from Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses one and two i hope your hearts are ready to dive into this great letter together and spend a few weeks here as we study together now i want to give you a little bit of background information on actually philippi we need to know that all of the bible was written in a historical context to real people living in real places under real circumstances and so as we study we have to understand where this letter was going, who it was written to, and why Paul would actually write this letter to them, and why God preserved it for his church for all time. And so, now, according to scholars and historians, Philippi was not a very big city. It was about 10,000 people or so, and it rested on a very narrow piece of land that had an acropolis that guarded what is known as the Via Ignatia. That was the famous highway that basically connected Rome with the eastern highway. So it's on this major thoroughfare of commerce and traffic all across the Roman Empire from the west to the east. Now it was founded by the Greeks in the 4th century by Philip of Macedonia or Philip of Macedon who was the father of Alexander the Great. For those studying western civilization this is about where, uh, this is one of the major um, major characters in it, Alexander the Great. And then Philip of Macedon named it after himself. Now, Philippi was modeled on the city of Rome. It shared its architecture. It shared um the way the city is laid out. And so it was basically modeled after Rome, but on a smaller scale. Um All of the patterns and styles of the architecture were copied. From the mother city of Rome, and even their coins bore Roman inscriptions. Now, even though Philippi, Philippi wasn't the capital of Macedonia, it was by far the most important city. It was the leading city. Now, what you need to know about Paul is that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. So, Paul is imprisoned in Rome somewhere between 60 and 62 AD which means he writes this letter some 10 to 13 years after what happened in Acts chapter 16. So what we looked at last week, now we fast forwarded about 10 to to 12 years, and now Paul is writing a letter back to this church that he had started. Now Paul, at the time of his writing, is dealing with a number of issues among several churches, of course now he's completed a lot of his missionary journeys and there are churches all over the place now, and so Paul takes this time in prison to write and instruct these churches on things they need to, they need to deal with. Now, if you, if when we look at Philippians, we're going to cover this as we go, but the question ultimately is why did Paul write this letter? Why did Paul from prison take the time to write a letter back to the church at Philippi which was seemingly doing well. Well, here are the reasons. Here, as we go through the text, we'll cover more, but I want to give you the brief summary here. What had happened was that the Philippian church had sent a monetary gift to Paul to help pay for his travels and to support him even while he was in prison. And so they sent, they sent, they, they sent Paul this financial gift through a man named Epaphroditus, who was a representative of the church at Philippi. So they sent Epaphroditus all the way to Paul to give him a gift. And what happens is Epaphroditus gets deathly sick on the way. He almost dies. And the church heard that Epaphroditus had almost died. And so he's recovering with Paul. And Paul writes the letter while Epaphroditus is recovering in order to send him back well and with a letter of encouragement from Paul. And so they were worried about Epaphroditus and Paul. So Paul takes this opportunity, um, takes this, uh, this opportunity to send a letter back with Epaphroditus. Now, according to Acts nineteen, um, the Bible talks about this all over the place. Why it's so important, we study it. Act, according to Acts nineteen and Philippians two, Paul had maintained a lot of links with the Macedonian churches through Timothy. Timothy was kind of the connection between Paul and all of the churches. Paul had visited Philippi at least on two other occasions, probably during the autumn of 54 AD to 55 AD, and again he visited them in 56 or 55 or 56, and that's according to Acts chapter 20. Now, in 1 Corinthians 16, there's a possible third visit that we don't know much about. Now, so that's that's part of what's going on here. So why did Paul write this letter? Um, there are several things he wants to do here. I want to give you uh, just three big ones here. When Paul writes this letter, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to thank the church for their generosity and care for him in his mission efforts. You're going to see that as we go through the letter. Paul is filled with gratitude for the Philippian church. But second, he also wanted to give them a heads up that I'm about to send Timothy back to you. Timothy's with me in Rome and... He's here taking care of my needs, but soon I'm going to send Timothy back to check on you. And he wanted to let them know about that. Third, and this is one one of the few negative things in the books, uh, in the letter. Third, Paul had heard of some issues in Philippi regarding a Jewish sect, mostly known as what are called Judaizers, and he wanted to encourage the church to not fall into their trap of going back to the old legal system, but to stay fast, stand fast and stand firm in the gospel of grace that had been given to them from Paul and not to fall into or be deceived by that false teaching. Now despite even those negative things, Paul's tone in this letter is one of joy. It is a letter that, you, it is a letter that uses the word rejoice over and over and over again. It is a book that is filled with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. So this morning, with that background out of the way, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the opening salutation, verses 1 and 2, where Paul loads it up with theological content centered on our relationship with Christ Jesus. That's my title this morning, Christ as Centerpiece. As we read the salutation, what we're, going to look, what we're going to see is that when Paul writes this, he is arguing, even through his opening salutation, that Jesus Christ is, is the central person to all of Paul's life and identity. Jesus is central. He is everything to Paul. Paul will make that abundantly clear through his letter, just to give you a kind of a look, leap into the future when Paul says later in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain, everything is summed up in that Jesus is center to our lives. He will also say in Philippians later on that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he says, that's the point. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Jesus is the centerpiece of Paul's life. He's the blazing sun in the center of Paul's universe. Every part of Paul's life is filtered through the lens of Jesus. Everything. He even says that I take every thought captive to bring it under the submission of Jesus, the submission and rule of Jesus. Now let me say why this is important from the get-go. I want you to get, if you, if you miss everything else I say, tune in for the next three minutes. This is the heart of the matter. Why is this so important? That Jesus is central. Christianity is not primarily about a set of thoughts, or a set of ideas, or a set of rules, or a set of doctrines. Christianity is primarily concerned with a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard it said many times, it's a cliche. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And I want to say, yes, that is true. But the, ultimately, it, there's a more important question. What kind of relationship? That's the ultimate question. What kind of relationship? Why? Because you, the relationship you have with your spouse, if you have one, is different than the relationship you have with your primary care physician or your your personal trainer or the waiter at the restaurant or the mail person. You have different kinds of relationships. So what ultimately matters isn't a relationship in general. It is a specific covenantal relationship with Jesus as Lord. Listen, who we are and who Christ is and how those two relate to each other, The answer to those questions are the difference between biblical Christianity and false Christianity. Christianity is primarily concerned with a person, the Lord Jesus, and our relationship to Him by faith. Now, let me say it a different way. We don't have salvation. We don't have redemption because of thoughts, because of ideas, or doctrines. We receive salvation by entering into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says there, you have to come to me. A person. Not an idea. Not a theology. You come to a person. The Lord Jesus. Peter preaching to the Jews at Pentecost says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Name representing the person. The person of Jesus. As John says in his letter, he says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So it's, not, it's about our relationship to a certain person named Jesus. Now let me say it a, di- a different way. You can have religion and not have Jesus. Amen. Churches are filled with religious people. You can have religion and not have Jesus. You can have church membership and not have Jesus. You can have you can be baptized and not have Jesus. So this is primarily about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what is of ultimate importance. And as we look at the salutation, we're going to see how important that is to Paul. So, Philippians chapter 1. That was all introduction. you got 30 minutes of preaching after that. Y'all better hold on. Listen to what he says there in Philippians. This is the opening of the letter. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I'm going to break this into three sections. We're going to focus on three prepositions. We're going to look at the prepositions of, the preposition in, and the preposition from. Notice first that, he's the, that this letter begins with Paul saying that we are a possession of Christ Jesus. A possession of Christ. Christ Jesus. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This letter opens with a salutation of who is sending the epistle, who's writing the letter. The letter is coming from Paul and Timothy, both of whom were present at the very beginning of the church at Philippi, as we covered last week. Now Timothy, if you didn't know this, Timothy appears in the salutation of Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So Timothy is present at almost every stage where Paul is writing letters. So this letter is coming to them from two very trusted sources. And Timothy's inclusion also gives weight to the letter as he, as he will be basically serving as a second witness to the testimony that Paul is going to give. But Paul does something else in mentioning Timothy. Look what he says. He said, Paul links both he and Timothy as servants of Christ. The Greek word there is doulos, which some of your translations might just put simply as slave. That's what the word means. The word means slave um, in the Old Testament. This word servant typically referred to someone who was sent on a divine mission, kind of like a prophet. But note that Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile region in Europe, in Philippi. There would have been no positive connotations for this word as these were all Greek readers. They would have only thought of this word in the connotation of a Roman household slave. In Roman culture, you need to know that slaves were very common due to the war efforts. And in many places and in many churches, slaves would worship in Christian churches alongside their masters. Slaves had no rights. They had no privileges. And everything about their lives related only to their masters. And I want you to know that that is Paul's point right here at the beginning. In other letters... Paul would refer to himself as an apostle of Jesus. But here in Philippi, he chooses on purpose to refer to himself in Timothy only as being a slave of Christ. So what Paul is doing is he is presenting the, the Christian ideal of being a servant. Being a servant of Christ speaks of our being a possession of Christ. That Christ owns us. He is our owner, our Lord, our master, and our ruler. We are his servants. Now, this is the role that Paul and Timothy had received from Jesus. And I want to say here, church, that we have to see ourselves in light of that same role. This is our posture towards Jesus. We are his servants. We belong to Him, and we willingly take that upon ourselves because Jesus is master. We follow Christ. Now, Paul is going to use this same term in chapter two to speak of Jesus. He's going to say, Jesus took the form of a slave and lived among us in humility to for our good and for the glory of the Father. Jesus took the least desirable role and the least honorable role, and made that the ideal for his people. Think about that. Jesus could have said anything else. Jesus could have came as anything else. He was the king, but he chose to come as a servant. He did that to leave us an example. The point is that Jesus taught all of those that would be his people that if you want to be first and greatest in his kingdom, you don't seek the highest place, no, no. You seek the lowest place and you become the servant of all. You become last. Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There are too many Christians who think they come to Jesus and their life is to be filled with comfort and ease and everything is supposed to be okay. And that's not what you read in any of the New Testament letters. When you come to Jesus, you come to him in a a, a posture of submission to him as Lord, where I don't call the shots, Jesus does. I don't make the rules, Jesus does. I don't dictate the terms, Jesus does. I am a possession of the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus who gave his life a ransom for many, who willingly laid down his life for others as our example. Now here's the question. Who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Listen, even Hollywood knows the claims that Jesus makes. One of the funniest scenes from uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was when Chris Pratt, who plays Star-Lord, he gets into a fight with Iron Man, and Man, uh, and then Dr. Strange looks at him and says, What master do you serve? And Chris Pratt says, You want me to say Jesus? It was funny, but the point was, even an alien who lived on another planet knew the claims that Jesus made, that Jesus is Lord of all. That's the point. My question is, who is the Lord of your life? Who is your master? Can you, like Paul, call yourself a servant of Christ? Is your life characterized by laying, the da- laying down your own ambitions, your own privileges, your own desires for the service of our Lord and the good of his kingdom? He begins by saying, we are a possession of Christ Jesus, a possession of Christ Jesus. Secondly, notice our position in Christ Jesus, the second preposition, our position in Christ Jesus. He says there at the end of verse 1, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. Notice here that Paul addresses his letter to all the saints, not to all the Christians. Not to all the believers or to even all the church members. He addresses it to all the saints who were in Philippi. Now the word saints here occurs over 60 times in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. So Paul writes his letter to the holy ones who were at Philippi. And again, this speaks of our position in Christ. As believers, we are united to Christ by faith. And all of God's promises and blessings flow to us because of our union with Jesus. We are in Him. Now, you didn't know this is one of the most famous phrases in all of the New Testament. The phrase, in Him, or in Christ, appears 180 times in the New Testament. 143 times Paul writes it. Paul was absolutely engulfed with this idea that positionally, I am in Jesus. We are holy and we are saints because of what Christ has done for us. You need to hear that. We are not holy in and of ourselves. This is not something we work up in ourselves or something that we can produce on our own. No, no, no. This is something that Jesus does in us and for us. It is Christ who has made us saints by taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. Now, it's important. Again, context matters. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and they are politically Romans, they have all of the blessings of Roman citizenship. They they are positionally Romans. But Paul's point is that now by God's grace in Christ, you are saints in Christ Jesus. You were once apart from Christ, separated from the life that's in Him, and now you've been placed into Him by faith. And as saints, God has granted that we be known and called by His own holiness and character. It says something about who we are in Christ and it says something about how we are to live in light of what Jesus has done. We are to live out that holiness that has been given to us. God expects his people to live out this new position in their lives. Now, go back to last week. Think about the Philippian jailer. He cries out to Paul in the middle of the night, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And all of a sudden, everything dramatically changes For this Philippian jailer. All of a sudden, he's no longer primarily identified by being a Roman official. Or by his occupation as a jailer. No, no, no. He is now in Christ. And everything about him now is lived out of that sphere that I belong to Jesus. I am in him and he is in me by his spirit indwelling. I belong to Jesus and my position is in Jesus. But it also says something else. Being a saint in Christ speaks of our relationship to one another, doesn't it? Have you noticed here that all of us who are in Christ, all of us here, as Paul is writing to the church, he says all of us who are in Christ have been set apart, we've been sanctified, we've been made holy in Christ together. That title belongs to every believer, young, old, small, big, no matter what, rich, poor, Saints in Jesus. There are no second class citizens in God's kingdom. If you belong to Jesus, you are no less a saint than anyone else. You are no more a saint than anyone else. It's all because of our relationship to Jesus, which gives us a new relationship with one another. And then I want to just end this section by just pointing out how Paul ends this verse here. Notice that Paul says at the end of this, To all the saints, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to make a point really quickly that while all believers are saints, not all saints are overseers or deacons. Okay? That's that's what I want to point out here. This shows, though, that Paul had already established in this young church in less than 10 years, Paul had already established functioning offices in the church at Philippi. That's part of what Paul's missionary journey was. After he established churches, he would go back and make sure that their biblical offices were being appointed in each church, the office of pastors and deacons, or overseers and deacons, or elders and deacons. Now, notice that the word is plural. There are multiple overseers and deacons in the church at Philippi. Now, you might go, well, what does the word overseer mean? The word overseer is the word episkopos, where we get the word episcopalian. Or, the translation, some translations say bishop. Okay, that's what older translations say. Um, It is sometimes, um, it is one of three words in the New Testament used to describe the office of pastor or elder. You need to know that elder is the most common word in the New Testament for the office of pastor. Pastor is the least used word in the New Testament. So, the most used word, elder, second most used word, overseer, third most used word, pastor. Now, we know. From Scripture that all three words are used interchangeably and refer to one office. They're not three offices. There's one office. There's the office of pastor, elder, overseer, and the office of deacon. So two offices, but three words to describe one of those offices. Now you would say, Jacob, how do you know that? I'm going to give you two scriptures, and I'll just show you how they're used interchangeably. You can go study it later on your own. The first is Acts 20, verse 28. This is Paul. Paul says this to the elders at the church at Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. He writes to the elders. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. That's why I know it refers to the same office. And then he commands them to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. All three words in the same text referring to one office. You're an elder, God made you an overseer, shepherd the flock. And then, so that's Paul. Peter has the same understanding because Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God. That's the word pastor. So I exhort the elders to pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, being a bishop. Elders, shepherd, be overseers. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So when Paul writes this letter... Instead of writing to the pastors and deacons or to the elders and deacons, he just uses a different word, overseer and deacon, which is the second most common word. So, next time you see Henry in the hall, say, What's up, Bishop Simpson? That's that's what you need to say right there. Or Episcopal Simpson or Overseer Simpson, but don't let that go to his head, all right? Um, But that's what the Bible says. But my point in the whole text is we are in Jesus. So, we are servants of Christ, saints in Christ. And third and finally, we are partakers of grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there at the end of verse 2. After Paul gives a salutation, he says, Grace to you and peace from... Where does this come from? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes this opening salutation with a short summary of how the gospel works in our lives it's all about jesus and it's all about the gospel so what how do we know this is how the gospel works well let's think about this for a second it is the father who sent the lord jesus to come among us it is the father who sent jesus to come and show us the love and grace of the father it is jesus who died in our place taking our sin and shame rising again to conquer death and hell, as we sang about earlier, so that we will have peace with God. Jesus would come bringing grace upon grace so that we would have peace with God, that we would no longer be enemies, but having our sins forgiven and God's wrath abated, we would have peace. This is a summary of the gospel. When we come to faith in Christ, we continue to be partakers of grace upon grace, and peace upon peace. And now, and now, being in Christ, hear me, being in Christ, we drink every day from now throughout eternity from the ever-flowing fountain of God's grace and peace because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, we partake together as believers from Christ, immeasurable and unending grace and peace. It's funny that all throughout Paul's preaching, he goes back and forth between two phrases. Paul preaches the gospel of grace, and he preaches the gospel of peace. He preaches the gospel of grace. And he preaches the gospel of peace, both referring to the same truths that through God's grace found in Jesus, we experience peace with God. Listen to what Acts twenty twenty four says. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace. And then listen to what Paul says in Acts 10. He says, As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching the gospel of peace through Christ Jesus. It's the gospel of peace. Now listen, we are ongoing recipients of the gospel's grace and the gospel's peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a statement. What a statement of Jesus' authority and position in relation to the Father. This is, though, I want to just give a warning. This is for those who have received Christ as the centerpiece. This is for those who are servants of Christ, saints in Christ, and partakers of grace and peace from the gospel of Christ. From Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no grace for you. Apart from Christ, there is no mercy for you. Apart from Christ, there can be no peace with God because you were still in your sin, under your wrath, under God's wrath, under the law, separated from God, and under the curse. The only way that all three of these things are true is to come to Jesus. Now, as I conclude, everything that follows in Philippians, this is a precursor to the rest of our study. Everything that follows in Philippians flows out of this salutation. This sets the tone. Paul didn't waste words when he wrote it, and the Holy Spirit did not waste words when he inspired Paul to write it. Nothing else in the letter will make sense or matter in your life if your identity is not found in Christ Jesus. If Jesus is not centerpiece of your life, because of the cross of Jesus all who come with open hands of faith can be forgiven and granted life in Jesus. No matter how you walked in this morning, hear me, no matter how you walked in this morning, you can walk out a saint and servant of Jesus by faith in His name. Jesus will call you a saint this morning if you come to Him by faith. And you will be a partaker of grace and peace forever. Now Christian, Are you living out your identity? Are you ready to be strengthened by this letter over the next few weeks? Are you ready to be confronted by it? Examine your heart right now. Do you come to Jesus and His Word as a servant? Do you come to His Word as someone who is ready to hear from their Master? If someone were to examine your life over the last week or month, who would it look like you serve? As Bob Dylan said, it's a great way to end a sermon, right? Quote Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. The question is, do you serve Jesus? Would you pray with me and then we'll have a time of invitation. Father, bless your word as it's been opened. Father, speak to us clearly. May we see ourselves in light of what you say as a possession of Christ Jesus. Seeing and knowing our position in Christ Jesus as saints and being a recipient, a partaker of grace and peace. Speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name.